who gave the woot, but that was great. I still say I would love to see Donnie and Bobby down there corralling those kids. If I could just be a fly on the wall for that. All right, so this morning we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, though I'm not going to turn, go ahead and turn there, but we're not going to read just yet. Um, It's kind of a weighty topic this morning, kind of a difficult topic, um, but I think it's a very relevant topic for the church to deal with um, in light of our current state of culture, in light of decisions that were made on the government basis this week in New York, um, in light of just a a myriad of things that are going on, um, ideologically speaking, in our nation. Last Sunday was National Sanctity of Life Sunday. I don't know if you realize that. But it's the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And I'm thankful for the presidents that, um, that have supported that. Not all of them have, but it started with Ronald Reagan, and it's been supported through the, through, through the years. And we recognize that it's good for politicians, and it's good for um, social uh, activists and, and advocates, and it's good for all of us in, in the matters of faith and in church to stand in solidarity last week, this week, in the midst of all of this, in recognizing the value, the inherent value of human life. But look, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the problem of abortion is not fundamentally a social or governmental problem. Fundamentally, this problem is a problem that is spiritual. And spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. Our allegiance is not fundamentally to our nation, though I'm a patriot, but our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And we have to view that and, and all of these issues through the lens of the kingdom of God. And by the way, when we're going to talk about abortion this morning, and as I say, it's going to be weighty and we've got to deal with something that's super controversial. And I want you guys to realize right up front that this church you know, and what I'm preaching this morning is all about grace and it is all about the gospel and it's all about goodness and what is ultimately good for humanity. And we start from that point. But it, you know, when we talk about these sensitive cultural issues and I think about abortion and I think about homosexuality, a lot of times people say that these are our pet topics. You know, these are Christians' pet topics, the things that we talk about all the time. It's, it's really not the case. The only reason that that comes up so much is because it's so controversial and because that's where culture rubs up against our belief system in a real way. I mean, we really do believe that this cultural sin is just, is just that bad and so detrimental to human flourishing in general. Um, but let me just be clear. When we talk about the sanctity of life, that's really the topic this morning, we're saying that someone is valuable inherently from the time that they're conceived into eternity. And we're not singling out the unborn as the only ones that are valuable. We're saying, no, no, everyone, the marginalized in society, the poor, the immigrants, those that have been set aside by other parts of society, everyone, um, the elderly who can't maybe support themselves like they, they once were able to, everyone has an inherent value because they are made in the image of God. That is the pro-life position. When we say sanctity of life, we're saying everyone has value because of this position. That is the position. So I want to do two things with this sermon. The first is I want to answer the question, what does Scripture say about how we as believers should engage with something like abortion? Okay, What do we do with this? 
What, what should be our response to this on a cultural level? And then secondly, because so much of the discussion is, is, is really hijacked by misconception and misnomer and, um, and, and people don't really tend to understand what Christians are saying about this, I want to bring some clarity to the issue on the basis of what Scripture says, on the basis of what we can conclude from logic, what is it that Christians really believe and we're really saying about this? So how do we engage and let's bring some clarity to the position, all right? So that's my goal this morning. That's where we're headed when we look at Ephesians chapter 5. But before we get there, let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this time that we can set aside and deal with a a difficult topic in a way that is honoring to you. I pray this morning that your grace would be known in this place, that we would be people that are known by our love for one another. I pray this morning you would help me to communicate clearly and faithfully according to what your word teaches because it has so many ramifications for us as believers in this place and this time that you've called us to live. Help us to be faithful with with the influence that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to take something that Paul, he had this passage and these instructions with broad application, and I'm going to direct it to one issue, to one topic. So I'm going to take something that's broad and direct it towards something very specific. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, let's start there. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live in love. Just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial, fragrant offering to God. Let me stop right there. Check this out. Four words. You ready for it? Be imitators of God. Think about that. That sums up what we might call the Christian ethic. That sums up how we should think about right and wrong. Be imitators of God. When you Just as a, an aside this morning, when you think about a world that doesn't even believe in God, uh, in our American uh, culture, this is one of the maybe the best arguments for the existence of God. It's called the moral argument. How do you know what's right or wrong, right? Um, uh, other other uh, systems of belief don't have a good answer to this. It can't be simple preference. It can't be cultural conditions or some sort of social contract that we've entered into because all of those things are subjective, There's no undergirding authority to any of those things. It's all subjective. We as believers have an explanation for what is right and what is wrong and that lasts into eternity. And that is, you ready for this? According to this passage, the reason we know what is right or wrong comes down to the character of God himself, which is unchanging. We may change. The world may change. Everything may change. But God does not change. And his character does not change. And so therefore, morality and what is right and wrong does not change. It is grounded in God himself. And so Paul says, given, given this truth, what should, how should we live? What should we do? What should we do with right, these issues of right and wrong? He says, four words, be imitators of God. We have a brilliant answer to why things are right and wrong, and that's God. How should we be imitators of God? Specifically, Be imitators of God. How do you know what the will and character of God looks like? His word. Specifically, the word that became flesh. The self-sacrificial love that Jesus has showed to sinners gives us 
an example of how we should be imitators of God. The character of God, the self-sacrificial love. So when we're talking about this really, 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 really touchy subject, we start from that. We start with saying we need to love like Jesus has loved. Both the unborn and the mother and the abortion doctor. We start from that premise that our calling is to love others first as Jesus did. Verse 3. But among you there must not be either sexual immorality, impurity of any kind, or greed, or the, for these are not fitting for the saints. Neither should there be vulgar speech, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, all of which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. For you can be confident of this one thing, that no person who is immoral, impure, or greedy, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know, there is, a, there is an overlap in the sense that Ephesus, this, this place that Paul is writing to, um, mirrors a lot of our own cultures today. There's a, in Ephesus, there was this sort of flippant attitude about sexual purity. Um, there was a hedonistic or self-centered view of the world. Um, and then there was plenty of places in Ephesus to worship idols, which I, I think all of us can, can realize that some of these things are present in America today. Um, Here's what Paul is saying. The world's pattern of thought when it comes specifically to these issues, sexual purity, greed, and coarse joking, the world's pattern of thought does not line up with the way that a Christian should live as they are being an imitator of God. So don't let it rub off on you. Don't let the, the, the pattern of the way that they think about this rub off on how you think and therefore act about this. Why these three sins? Well, look, these are, these are three sins that you see self-centeredness come to the fore in a very real way. I mean, you just see selfishness manifested in these sins, maybe, maybe even more than other ways because they're so external. So think about it like this. Sexual impurity. We all recognize the, the goodness that is the marriage bed, but at, this, at the same time, what happens when you are, are, are outside of those parameters is you're saying the other person, I'm going to take pleasure from the other person without regard for what's best for the other person in the mind of God. You're prioritizing self above what's best for them. In the instance of greed, it's, it's a disease where you start saying the things that God hasn't given you and that God has given to other people, you, you are saying that God's will is not good enough and your agenda is better than God's will. It is inherently selfish. And in the instance of, uh, course, joking, right? You're, you're toying with sin. You're acting like it's not a big deal. You're just kind of making light of it. And in that instance, you're making yourself look good to others, to the world, at the expense of that toying with sin. I don't think I need to... Uh, tie a bow around this morning how sexual impurity, how uh, sexual joking or coarse joking and greed are connected to the abortion culture in America. I think we can all see how those things really are connected without me drawing direct lines this morning. Um, but, but, let's look at verse 6. Let nobody deceive you with empty words, for because of these things God's wrath comes on the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were at one time in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for the things they do in secret are shameful even to mention, but all things being exposed by the light are made evident. So the first part of the passage is dealing with an internal look at whether or not we have taken on the patterns of thought of the world. Are we thinking like the world more than the way that that the Lord has told us things really are? Now, we're directing our gaze at how should we interact with those that are living in disobedience, all right? So what should we do as we engage with people uh, as they're living with disobedience? So four, four statements of instruction from Paul here, if you're taking notes. The first instruction is let nobody deceive you with empty words. Don't let anybody tell you that what is right and good is actually wrong and evil. Or what is wrong and evil is actually right and good. Don't let anyone tell you to flip your morality on its head in favor of what the world has said. Don't let anyone deceive you with these empty words. Secondly, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Literally, the word is don't go into business with them. Don't be a partner with someone who is going to disregard these fundamental truths about right and wrong. And don't necessarily take that too literally. I'm not talking about being an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm, talking about, uh, I'm talking about taking on um, you know, people of influence in your life that don't have a good conception about what pleases God and what doesn't, right? Um, but instead, walk as children of the light. That's, that's the counter here. Walk as children of the light, the third instruction. And I'll talk about light in a second, but what does that mean? Well, it means we're committed to goodness, righteousness, and truth. That is what being a child of the light means. And then fourthly, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Don't let one inch of darkness into your life if you can help it. Don't let those influences in your life that's going to change the pattern of your thought because the pattern of your thought is going to change your action. Don't let one inch of that darkness into your life. Now, so let me me paint the picture this way. Paul is talking about the difference between light and light and dark. That's the analogy here, and it's important to understand. On the, on the one hand, light intellectually has to do with truth, and morally it has to do with holiness, right? On the other hand, you've got darkness intellectually that has to do with lies and falsehood. Morally, that has to do with evil. Check this. The Lord has taken us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. We have come out of a world of lies and falsehood and evil and into a world of truth and holiness where we're committed to him, to be an imitator of him. This is, this is profound. Think, think about it like this. Paul, who is writing this, stood on the road to Damascus. How did Paul get saved? Jesus shows up in a blinding light. It blinds Paul for days until finally the scales fall from his eyes when he hears the the gospel and and gets saved. And now he was in darkness, he was in evil, he was in wickedness, and he's come into the light, the light that came from Jesus himself. Think about it like this. 
Um, if anybody can come out of darkness and into the light, I mean, I mean, if Paul can do it, then anybody can do it. Paul was truly, in his religious zeal, he was a murderer. He killed many believers, including their families. By the way, including their young children, he was a child murderer. He came out of darkness and into light. If Paul can do it, anybody can do it. And we need to remember, remember, uh, remember this morning. Let me be very clear about this. I don't know what, you know what anybody in this room has been through when it comes to the issue of abortion. But look, let me tell you something. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot cover if you are in Christ. You hear me? There is no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot give you victory over if you are in Christ. No shame, no guilt. No matter what it is, if you are in Christ, He will give you victory over the sin. Paul knew it better than anyone. Out of the darkness and into the marvelous light, he was transformed. And check this. This is really important. Check this out. Look, look up here. Paul is saying something that Jesus said. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. The light of Christ that transforms us now emanates from us into the world. You are the light. The light that blinded Paul, he is now saying, I am the light. You are the light. If you're in Christ, you are the light. Exposing the darkness. So we are not only transformed, but we're called to expose darkness. And y'all, let me tell you something this morning. Exposing darkness when darkness doesn't want to be exposed is kind of a painful thing at times. Uh, evil sin doesn't like to be exposed. Amen? I know it's true for me. Sin doesn't like to be exposed. How should we expose as children of the light? Be imitators of God through the self-sacrificial love of Christ. We expose in and through self-sacrificial love we see in the gospel. That is how we are imitators. That is how we expose darkness. Not throwing our fingers in the air and shouting at the abortion clinic that everyone's going to go to hell and there's no grace given in the midst of that uh, conversation. That's, you know, we're not trying to judge and condemn someone. We are saying that Jesus loves you and your child. That is the starting point. All right, so that is, that is the instruction that we see from Paul this morning. Um, let's now turn. I want to I bring some clarity to the complexity of this issue because I think that's very, very important as we talk about it. We've got to realize that there are certain areas of gray. For instance, when we have to make the decision um, to save a mother or her child. That is a very difficult decision. That's a very difficult decision. And that's, that's truly not on the same plane as making a decision to abort on the basis of quality of life or comfort or financial stability. Those are two completely different decisions, all right? And uh, my family recently, my uh, brother and sister-in-law, my brother and sister-in-law recently um, had a child named Lydia, and Lydia was born with Down syndrome. They were able to diagnose this very early on in the pregnancy. And so the, force, the first thing that the, the doctor told them, of course, uh, when they got this diagnosis is, hey, do you want to keep it? I can understand how someone may respond with a terrible decision 
in the midst of that emotional crisis. I, I totally, I, I can understand where they're coming from. Knowing all of the costs, knowing exactly what that was going to be for the rest of my family's life, I can understand where someone is coming from there and how they can make a truly sinful decision on the basis of emotion in the midst of all that. So we need to understand the complexity here. We need to understand, hey, check this out. In order to be consistent, if we're saying that the unborn is truly uh, worthy of inherent value because they're born in the image of God, then so too is the abortion doctor, so too is Planned Parenthood worker, so too is the mother who's had an abortion. They are all in the image of God, and we cannot divorce it in order to be consistent. We are saying they are all worthy of our treating them with respect and recognizing their value as human beings. We cannot just place a stigma on someone that's made a terrible decision as though they're the worst sinner above all other sinners. Make sense? So, what, with all of that said, let me pull no punches this morning in saying just how evil abortion is. I, I mean, I, I really don't know that I have words to convey it. Um, when, we, when we look at this abortion culture that we live in, we're talking about infanticide that's been made efficient through technology that doesn't blunt the pain of the baby. Instead, we've legalized it and made it to where it's now commonplace for it to be celebrated. There's no, there's no stigma around it in our culture today. I, I don't know how to verbalize the extent of evil that that represents in our culture. That we can kill babies, our own babies. And we've con convinced mothers that they have that choice. There, there are no words there. But, but I can say that principally, this, this, is, um, this is arrogance because, because really what, what you're saying is your quality of life, your comfort of life, your financial stability, your future takes priority and precedent over the life of another. That's, that's essentially what's being said, right? So that cultural sin, the principle of that cultural sin, is something that we see in all sorts of cultures and many different manifestations. And I want to sort of frame it this way. This happens to be the one that's facing us in America today. But we've seen this same principle in other things. You think about it like this. A plantation owner who could look at a man's melanin and justify the belief that he is a lesser person because doing so is convenient for his economic interests. You think about Margaret Singer, who, by the way, was the founder of Planned Parenthood, could support forced sterilization of segments of the population she deemed unworthy of procreation in order to better the gene pool of America, 20th century. So the principle is when we devalue or dehumanize another person in favor of our own agenda or priorities, that is the epitome of evil and sin, and we see it in all different kinds of ways. Does that make sense? We see the same mechanism in these other cultural sins throughout the history of the world. The one that we face today, that maybe the biggest one, is this one of abortion. And the self-centeredness and the greed and the principles of sexual immorality, all of that feed into the desire to place self above the value of another person. That's just the latest rendition of this sin in the 21st century. Now, a lot of people make the comment when we talk about things like this that you need to be on the right side of history. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. You need to be on the right side of history. 
Okay, let me, let me deal with this a little bit. Because principally, they're not wrong. Let me explain. When someone says you need to be on the right side of history, usually they mean that in 100 years from now, they're going to judge our actions back in this time on the basis of what they believe to be right or wrong 100 years from now. The problem is what they believe to be right or wrong 100 years from now is not the standard that we judge things by. Instead, we must judge things by at the end of our life when we stand before the Creator, what does He say is right or wrong? And He will determine whether or not we're on the right side of history. The principle is right. The timeline is wrong. The timeline is God's timeline, not a hundred years from now. People don't get to decide that. The Lord, the Creator does. The principle is right. The timeline is wrong. Now, as we talk about the pro-life position, again, bringing some clarity to what we believe this morning, um, there are two uh, foundations for this. On the one hand, we have the theological foundation. On the other hand, we have the scientific or logical foundation. Let me talk about each briefly. Uh, on the theological basis for the pro-life position, we see Genesis 1, 26 through 28. You all know it. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We find our identity in the fact that we are made in the image of God. Fundamentally, we, who we are as people, what separates us from the animals... We are not an animal. That, 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 that doesn't line up with Scripture. We are not an animal. We have value in the scheme of things because we are made in God's image. And God is unchanging and valuable. And therefore, His image is valuable. The connection there is profound. And, and, and when we toss that away, we, we miss the whole argument. Um, look at it this way. Did you know that over the course of your day, on whole, most of us will be exposed to up to 5,000 images or messages of some sort. 5,000. Whether that be through social media, work, advertisement, TV, all different kinds of messages. 5,000. And you can see how the pattern of the world through 5,000 images will rub off on our thinking, not only about the lives of others, but the value of our own lives and our own identity when we are not having any imp input from Scripture or from the Lord. When we, when we re receive those messages from the world, we lose the, our own identity. In other words, we often identify ourselves based on Instagram pictures rather than the image of God. And that's the problem. We must find identity in God first. That's what distinguishes us. Okay, so that's the theological basis, just bringing clarity. The logical basis. You know, a lot of people will say, hey man, that's your religious view. I don't believe in the Bible, so don't push that on me, right? Um, you hear this all the time. That's the, you know, we're talking about public policy. What's legal shouldn't have anything to do with what the Bible says, is the argument. I, I'm here to say that at this point, nature is consistent with Scripture. Faith is consistent with reason. And we don't need to point to Scripture to make a firm case that abortion is evil and wrong. I'll give you some examples this morning, though we could talk about this for a long time, but um, let me give you just sort of the basic argument so we have some clarity. Okay, basically, 
not taking Scripture into this at all. What are the differences between the unborn and the born, between the fetus and the newborn baby? What are the differences? That's the question. And are any of the differences meaningful enough to say that one is not a person and the other one is? Okay, that's the question. Are any of the differences meaningful enough to say that one is not a person and the other one is? You guys with me? You see where I'm going? All right, so here are the four differences between the two. Four. First of all, size. The size of an unborn baby is generally less than the size of a born baby. But look, let me ask you this this morning. Since when does the size of a person determine someone's personhood? Just because you've got a baby that's a day old and a baby that's 10 days old doesn't mean that the baby that's 10 days old is more of a person than the baby that's one day old. It doesn't make any sense. The next difference is level of development. Babies who are in the womb have not been developed as much as a born baby. That's true, generally speaking. And you often see this being said as, you know, hey, uh, that's just a clump of cells. But at the end of the day, I'm just a clump of cells, you know? What, what makes me more of a person than someone who's one years old? Level of development, someone who's pre-adolescence is not less of a person because they are not fully matured. Level of development has nothing to say about the value of a person or when someone becomes a person, right? The third difference is environment. Environment. The unborn baby is in the womb. The born baby is in the world. Okay, you see where I'm going with this. Since when does the where have to do with the what? What is it about being in the womb that makes you less of a person than one that's not in the womb? Logically, it has no, it doesn't follow. And then the fourth um, difference is the degree of dependency. The extent to which the unborn baby has to be dependent on mom via, via the womb, via the umbilical cord, and so forth, is greater than a baby who has been born and no longer has to rely on the umbilical cord. But look, y'all, again, you can see where I'm going with this. At the end of the day, the baby that doesn't have umbilical cord support still is supported by his parents. Cannot live without the help and intervention of the parents. So does that mean that that baby is no longer a person? just because they can't live without the help of the parents? And by this logic, if someone had to be hooked up to life support and couldn't support themselves, would they be less of a person just because they're dependent on something else? It doesn't make any sense. Dependency isn't a substantial enough difference to determine that someone is not a person. So those are the four, and again, very basic, very, very basic um, differences. But in all of those differences, there's nothing here that would make us think that this unborn baby is not a person, is not a person. That's perfectly consistent with what we see in Genesis chapter 1. So, as we're dealing with this topic, now let me turn to four misconceptions that people often um, get wrong about what Christians think about this, okay? Four misconceptions or misnomers, you might say. People on the outside looking at us they think that you know, they don't completely understand about what we believe. So the first misconception is when people say that you Christians, you pro-lifers, you don't care about women's choices. You heard that? Okay. Let me debunk that a little bit here. 
none of us believe that women should be able to do anything. Everybody restricts choices to a degree. A woman doesn't have the right to abuse her child, for instance. That would be a choice related to her child. But we say that they don't have that choice on the basis of legality or morally. Um, a woman doesn't have the choice to go into the doctor and say, or a man for this matter, um, I want my lung removed. Why? Well, because it would be more convenient for me. That, that, that choice doesn't exist in the medical world. But even when we've restricted those choices, what we find is that objection, when someone says, uh, this is my body, it's my choice, they have fundamentally misunderstood what we're saying about the argument. We are saying that what you have in your womb is not your body. It's not your choice because that is a person, and that person should have the choice. I refuse to call it a pro-choice movement because the baby don't have no choice. The baby is what we're saying is the life, and therefore that is not your body. The argument does not hold. The second misnomer that we often see about the Christian position is that they, they say that we don't care about people who have gone through circumstances of rape and incest. Now, um, this is very difficult, and I, um, I, I pray that, let me stop for a second and say, with the prevalence of this kind of sin in our world, those doors right there are always open, and the people in this church always have open arms. We are ready to minister. We are ready to say that we love you and Jesus loves you. And we will work with you and walk with you in that terrible emotional crisis. I am 100% committed to that. But at the same time, when we talk about abortion uh, as the, the result of rape or incest, first of all, statistically, of the about a million abortions that occur in our nation every year, according to the CDC, about 1.5% of them are related to uh, rape or incest. 1.5%. What about the other 98.5? Okay, now, that's a little bit of a sidestep to say, just because someone has done a terrible, wicked act of rape does not mean that the baby should pay for something that he or she did not choose. We are saying that the unborn uh, fetus is a person and they shouldn't have to pay for the decisions of a wicked person that they didn't have any control over. That's what we're saying. All right, the third misnomer or misconception is that they say believers, you know, they're not willing to take care of women who have had to, uh, who have had to abort or have chosen to abort. Um, and you know what, y'all? As I say, um, I pray that this church is known by our love for one for another and our love for those in the world and our love for sinners because we were all sinners and are all sinners and we all needed Jesus just as much as anybody else. And the person we're reading from this morning was Paul who was himself a murderer that came out of darkness and into light. And our church stands in the gap and saying that we love you and any sinner that walks in that door. We start from that point. We are imitators of God in that we are self-sacrificially trying to love other people. And, and so I pray that we are not guilty of neglecting those who feel the stigma of abortion in some way, shape, or form. I pray that we don't do that. But if every Christian in the entire world did not do their due diligence in serving uh, women who have had abortions, that still would not change a thing about the personhood of the fetus. It does nothing to debunk the pro-life position. The fourth um, 
misnomer or misconception about Christians with this is that Christians are always harping on abortion, but they don't care anything about the other tragedies in the world. Well, half of this, I think, maybe, um, you know, you hear a lot about Christians and abortion and pro-life because the media sees it as a controversial issue, and therefore it gets a lot of ratings when this stuff comes up. And so that's the stuff that we see all the time. And I think, actually, believers do spend a lot of time going to Africa, uh, sharing the gospel in Africa, taking care of the poor, taking care of the marginalized, uh, doing ministry with immigrants. You know, Christians are engaged in these other ways. You just don't see it as much because the media doesn't push it for it because it doesn't further their agenda. But nevertheless, even if, again, we completely failed in this regard, it would not change a thing about the personhood of the fetus. So what I hope you've heard this morning, just in, in sort of tying this all together, first of all is the clarity of the Christian position. We are consistent. We have the reason for right and wrong. We have the reason for valuing other people. And when, when others try to attack our position, inevitably it will fail because we have both logic and theology on our side. It is on our side. Uh, we have to be careful, as Paul says, to remove the sin and patterns of sin in our own thought and life. We have to make sure that none of that rubs off on us so that we don't think like the world thinks. We have to be careful internally and introspectively with that. But on the flip side, we have been called to take that purity, that holiness, that commitment to truth and to be the light in the world. As Jesus said, you are the light of the world. We are called in our spheres of influence, and I'm not saying that we all have the ear of a politician, and we're not saying that we all have the ear of an abortion doctor or a doctor at all. I'm not saying that at all. Maybe you do. Maybe that's the application this morning, is that in your sphere of influence, you need to be the light. But maybe some of us have experienced or know people that have had abortions or are thinking about an abortion or dealing with some sort of emotional turmoil when it relates to the sanctity of life. We need to be the light We need to point them to the truth, point them to holiness, away from the lies and the falsehoods and all of the the wickedness that shapes the patterns of thought of the world. We are called to walk as children of the light, and that looks different depending on who you are. And I'm just calling you to listen to the Holy Spirit this morning as we think through this issue. How can you be a child of the light with this most terrible, terrible cultural sin so that you are on the right side of history in the mind of the Lord? Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you help us, how you help us to see what is true from what is false and what is good from what is wrong and how uh, your word and your character grounds us in all of that. I pray that you will help us to speak clearly, help us to speak articulately, help us to speak passionately about something that is near and dear to your heart that truly uh, is, is evil incarnate in our culture, Lord. I, I pray that you would help us to be light, help us to speak into this issue. As we also are imitators of you in representing your character and love, help us to find the balance. Help us to find the balance representing truth and your self-sacrificial love. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.